ಸ್ವಾತ್ಸಾವಿಟುರ್ವಾರಣ್ಯಂ ಭಗೋದೇವಸ್ಯಾಧೀಮಿಯೋ ನಚೋದಯೋ May the light of God shine on all of you and bless all of you and us, me too. But I pray as I talk to you that I, I feel that I am talking to God through you. And I ask him and my guru to talk to you through me. Today I would like to read a very interesting story about my great guru. I've mentioned Dr. Lewis, his first Kriya Yoga disciple in America. This one in Conversations with Yogananda is in number 97. Years ago, Dr. Lewis told us, my mother suffered a severe stroke. The doctor said she might not live until morning. The master was in Cuba at that time and couldn't be reached. I prayed to him mentally for help, and my prayer was answered. My mother recovered. A few months later, she again fell ill. This time I was able to speak to Master and ask him in person for help. He replied, The Lord has spared her life quite some time now. If she lives another four months, we must be satisfied. It was four months later to the day that she left her body. Several years afterwards, Dr. Lewis continued, The Master said to me, Your mother has been reborn. I inquired immediately, of course, well, where is she living now, sir? He told me she was up north in the state of Maine. After some time, I had an opportunity to visit her family. Their little girl, my mother, was three years old by this time. The resemblance was uncanny. There were many little mannerisms, gestures, and movements, all exactly as they had been. The child didn't remember me, but she showed an instant affection for me, and I, quite apart from my special knowledge, felt a natural affection for her. The waters of Lethe close over us. We forget who we were. We forget whom we were close to in past lives. But you know that there have been many people in this life with whom you felt an instant affinity. Many times people who were close in the past are drawn together into the same family, not necessarily. Sometimes people are drawn together by the magnetism of hatred, and you see families fighting it out at close quarters. But the magnet of love is the real thing that draws people again and again. It's, it's a, a wonderful show. We may not remember the circumstances, but we do remember something. The thought that we are, and many people, of course, in the world believe that we are born for the first time. Look at, as I said the other day, what God has done with a nose, two eyes, and a mouth. There's so much variety. You could not create the variety of human attitudes and personalities in uh, um, just a few years of one lifetime that great variety, apart from that little spark of individuality in each one that makes one react in different ways spiritually, there is still uh, a certain 
complexity that develops in people as they grow over many lives that could not be otherwise. Here, I was born, just as one small example, into a home of, they were good people, yes, but totally materialistic in the sense of, uh, well, my mother was spiritual, but our values were those of uh, people who get good homes and good family and all those things. We lived in perhaps the richest suburb in America when we moved there, and it was just what I grew up with. I had no, absolutely no, inclination or push toward the spiritual life. Whatever I saw of the spiritual life completely turned me off because it seemed so phony. And yet there was always something inside me that said, this can't be the answer. There has to be more. Money was what I was brought up to. I thought, I don't want it. I know my dad, when I was 16 years old, wanted to buy me a tuxedo, which is the sort of thing you go to banquets and important functions and so on. I said, Dad, don't buy me a tuxedo. I'll never earn enough money to pay income tax. And it's proved to be true. I just have had a completely different interest from uh, what my family and their forefathers and everything had. It's that we're born with certain qualities. And uh, you see, even from birth, I know there was a woman uh, who told me that she had tried to raise her children in just the same way because she believed this modern dogma that uh, men and women are different only because of the way they're brought up. And so she thought, well, that's not right. I'm going to train, treat, bring both of them up in exactly the same way. She had to admit failure after a while. She said that the little girl, despite any training to the contrary, she loved dolls and dressing the dolls up and all that. And the boy, as soon as he saw a motorcycle go by, and he got all excited. Well, I don't think I was like that necessarily, but it was that everybody is basically influenced by his hormones. You can't. It's rather silly to think otherwise. The very sexual organs are outside and inside. There's an outwardness in men's consciousness and a more of an inwardness and self-protectiveness and whatever in the female consciousness. And you go across the board and you see that uh, this is bound to be so. I know my guru said to me one time, uh, he said, of the disciples, only St. Lin has completely pleased me. That was Arjashi Janakananda, his most advanced disciple. He said, all the others have disappointed me. Now, that doesn't mean that they've disappointed him spiritually, but he had a mission to fulfill in this world. And the others were thinking in terms of their own enlightenment, their own sadhana, their everything. But he said to me that day, and you mustn't disappoint me. And he said it was so much fervor that I, I used to tell me I had a great work to do, and I, I didn't take that as a compliment. I wanted to be a hermit. But I knew what he meant. I knew that this was my samskar, and indeed it was so. But the thing is that it... It takes a man to spread his mission. It, it's not a f normal feminine thing to do. You can find a few Joan of Arcs here and there. Not that many. Most of them don't think that way. And I've been trying to inspire both men and women to think of spreading his work, but it does, isn't something that came no naturally to anybody, really. I must, uh, it surprises me to say it, but it's a fact. One time in Beverly Hills, he was giving, it was a garden party, you know, when you're asked to speak at a garden party, it was in his honor, but nonetheless, 
you say, well, thanks to the hostess and the gracious hostess, and thank you all for coming. It's been wonderful, and the tea was great, and the cake was wonderful, and a few silly, superficial words. My God, that lecture was the most powerful talk I ever heard. He says, I want thousands of you to go north, south, east, west, everywhere, and what power he put into it to start communities. He talked to eight or 900 people that day. I was the only one who took his, his word seriously. The others thought, well, wasn't it cute? He had this idea of communities. No, I knew that was what was needed. If you didn't have communities where people can practice Kriya and practice these teachings, then how would they grow? They go to the office and they have all these materialistic people around them. Everybody lives in a neighborhood of people who are basically materialistic, and you end up feeling that, well, you've done a good thing because you helped a little old lady across the street? There's so much more to what the spiritual path is all about. And this is what he was trying to say. When you believe in these teachings and practice God and seek God, get together with others. Get together in satsang if you can do it, if you can build a community. He urged people to go out and buy land and build community. And... Uh, I'm the only disciple out of all those thousands of disciples who had that zeal when I heard him say that I vowed I would give every ounce of my blood to fulfill that dream of his. And yes, that is what I'm here in India to do. Yes, I want to spread his mission. I don't care about his, his I mean, it's, it would be a sattvic ego to want my guru's name to be known and that I have that ego too. But I don't want to convert people to him. I want to convert every one of you to yourself. And so while I want to share his teachings, I don't say be a convert. I'm not a Christian missionary. But if you want to, then take seriously what I'm saying. I would like to start communities here in India. I've seen them. You know, I've started seven communities in the West. A thousand people live in them. And the wonderful thing about them is that the people are so harmonious and there's so much peace and, and uh, real beauty in people. You see people coming with their usual lines of material unease and uh, worries and so on. Within a week, they begin to change. In a year, they're so different. One man said to me, you have some wonderful people here. I said, you know, if you meet one or two people like that in the streets, you can say they're wonderful people. You, met this, you meet this many, you have to say it's what they're doing that is wonderful. You can become transformed beyond your wildest dreams if you give your life to God and have satsang with other people because without satsang, it's much more difficult. You take one step forward, one step or half a step back and it's sort of struggling all the way. Do... Try, think seriously with me about starting communities. I'm an old man now. I'm in my 79th year. It's an age when most people would, uh, you might say I should have taken an early retirement, but I didn't. I want with my last breath to get my guru's work known. And what I've done in the West, I think can be many times larger here in India because the, foil, the soil is so fertile. People have that devotion. You don't have to talk to a bunch of skeptics and convince them. And I think we can start something much greater in India. That's what I am here for. Now, 
This, my guru said, and I was the only one who listened, but just one. And Sri Yukteswar had thousands fleeing from him, but one listened. And as a result, he said, through me, through my master, he converted thousands. It doesn't take multitudes. One moon gives more light than all the stars. I don't call myself a moon. I don't even call myself a star. But I do call myself a very sincere and dedicated disciple of a great master. And I hope that in this time in India, and whether you ever come to meet me, whether I ever see you, I hope through these programs to spark that little thought in your mind that yes, maybe there is something to this stuff after all. Maybe it is worth seeking to know who I really am. You're not an Indian, you're not a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian or anything. You're a little atom of God's light a little germ of his joy and your job in life. Apart from having the feeling that, well, I'm supposed to be a housemaker or a barber or whatever, your job is to know who you really are. You are a child of God. You are a spark of his infinite joy. And when you think of yourself as worried and fearful and so on, Remember that. That joy can never be touched. It can never be taken from you. Sooner or later, it isn't like when you try to become a millionaire and finally, well, being a millionaire in India isn't very much, but let's talk in terms of dollars or euros or something. When you can get a lot of money, are you happy? No. Joy isn't something that you have to scramble up a mountain peak and finally say, I've got it. The amazing thing is that when you meditate, and you get away, get, you see, education is a process of learning. Spiritual growth and yoga practice is a process of unlearning. You unlearn this thought that I have a physical body, that I'm a man or a woman. You unlearn this thought that I'm an American or an Indian or a Parsi or whatever. And you suddenly, in your meditation, discover, this joy is natural to me. It's what I am. You know, it looks so natural that you almost take it for granted at first. I remember back in my first year with my guru, I would go to, my, to the luncheon room and put my food aside and then go up and meditate for half an hour. Then I would come down and have my lunch. It was always cold, but it's okay. I'd rather meditate and contact God. Well, one day, just about the time when it was time for me to get up and go have my lunch, I suddenly felt this... It's strange to think of it, but you actually can feel it, just a vibrant, scintillating joy at the point between the eyebrows. It was so wonderful. And then I, the problem is it was so normal. You just suddenly realize, well, of course, that's what it's all about. So I thought, well, okay, I'll go down and eat. Now I know. You know, you don't keep things that long. You, you have to work to get it. I got it, and I had to lose it, have to come back. It's sort of like, this isn't a good example, but it's one I know leaving Los Angeles to go to New York. When you reach Banning, which is about 100, 100 miles or so out of Los Angeles, you see one sign which says something about New York. You've got to go many hundreds of miles more before you see maybe two signs of New York. The closer you get to New York, the more signs appear until finally it's nothing but signs of things in New York. So it is with God. At first you get little glimpses of him, a little light, a little joy, a little love. And then it may go a long time before you have more of that. But as you go on and get closer and closer, it begins to flood you, and you begin to feel that joy 
all the time and you feel love all the time. And it isn't like a sudden booming thing uh, like Satori. It's not like that. It's something that usually, sometimes it is, but usually it comes creeping up and you just feel yourself more and more filled with that. So a great poem that my guru wrote and then I sang it. God, God, God. It was given to him by St. Francis of Assisi. Help, may it inspire you. Joy to you. From the depths of slumbers I ascend The spiral stairways of wakefulness I will whisper, whisper God, God, God I walk the food and when I break my fast of nightly separation from thee I will taste thee and mentally say God, God, God No matter where I go the spotlight of my mind will ever keep turning on thee. And in the battle din of activity, my silent war cry will be, God, God, God. When boisterous storms of trial shriek, and when worries howl at me, I will drown their noises loudly chanting, God, God, God. When my mind weaves dreams, dreams, with threads of memories, on that magic cloth will I emboss God, God, God. Every night in time of deepest sleep, when my peace dreams and calls joy, joy, my joy comes singing evermore. God, God, God. In waking, eating, working, dreaming, sleeping, serving, meditating, chanting, divinely loving, my soul will constantly hum unheard by any God.